Looks like they'll have their hands full this morning, back there with all the kids. I, I want to ask you this morning, um, how many times in a day do you look in the mirror? I wonder, how many times a day do you look in the mirror? I, I, I look this up, and it depends on the websites that you're on. Uh, some will say that men are more vain, and they look in the mirror more. Um, some will say that women are more vain, and they look in the mirror more. Uh, the average times that people look in the mirror per day, somewhere between 8 and 20. It's a pretty big range, but I found many different websites. Uh, you can pretty much find a, a study about anything. Now, let me ask you, why do you look in the mirror? Anybody? Some of you try not to. I, I get that. I get that. You, it's, it's scary. Yeah, it, it, it can be. It can be. Now, you, haven't, you don't look in the mirror because you've forgotten what you look like. Sometimes you want to. I get that. You look in the mirror to make sure certain things about you are okay, right? I mean, if you have just eaten a meal, you're going to look in the mirror and make sure you have nothing in your teeth. Hopefully your friends will help you with that. Most of the time they won't uh, because they find it funny. And so you want to make sure your teeth are fine. Um, those of you who have hair, which is almost all of you, um, you will look in the mirror to check out how your hair looks. Maybe you've put on a layer of clothes, or you've took, taken off a sweater, or you've run your fingers through your hair, whatever that feels like. I have no idea. But you want to make sure that your hair looks pretty good. What you're seeing is your reflection. And I get it. Sometimes your reflection can be pretty funny, depending on what reflection you're looking at. I found um, on that beautiful internet, I found some interesting pictures of reflections, and these are all pretty funny. This first one um, is, it makes it look, right, like this guy's got, got issues, first of all. Um, he doesn't. I believe that is a, a reflection. The funniest reflections that you can see are by children. This next one is hilarious. <laughs> Full attack mode. There's another baby in this room. Need to get rid of this baby. Uh, I was hoping uh, my niece was here today. Sarah, I don't see her. She's not here today. So, uh, so she used to, and you'll remember this, uh, she used to give herself kisses in the mirror, see the baby, and, and, and then it would just end up just uh, pure drool going down. Um, and, and this last one is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> this baby's like, there are babies all around me. Oh my goodness. Reflections, right? People have been looking at their reflections for as long as time has been around. A lot of times, uh, back in the early days, they used, um, they used water to look into, look at their reflections, um, before mirrors, of course. Then, uh, as history moved on, they would polish up items like bronze or silver, and they would be able to see the reflections in that. And then they have the actual mirror that came out. And of course, now we have phones that we can turn it and look at ourselves uh, for as long as we want. But what we see is our reflection, which, by the way, you're stuck with. It. What you see is what you get. And I get it. Uh, sometimes that's depressing. And, but although I do have to say this, I do feel like there are some retailers out there that put weird mirrors in their dressing rooms. Uh, it, can, it can be kind of depressing at that. But today, we are going to be jumping back into the book of Nehemiah. We are going to be finishing our series that we've entitled, God is Greater. We've went through Ezra, now we're going through Nehemiah. And I promised you, and I'm going to fulfill that promise, and we're going to finish this 
by summertime. So we have this week and next week. Uh, there's a big chunk to go through. There are six chapters. And so we are going to break it up. We're going to do a survey of three chapters this week, three chapters next week. And what we're going to see this week as we go through chapters 8 through 10 in Nehemiah is this. That the Israelite people, they saw their reflection. The Israelite people saw their reflection um, in the mirror of God's word. And what we're going to find out is that we will also see our reflection in the mirror of God's Word. So let's jump back into the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to be in chapters 8 through 10. Uh, If you don't, they'll be up on the screen as I go through them. As we start in chapter 8, we are reintroduced to a guy, a blast from the past. His name is Ezra. And he is, and it feels like a lifetime ago, right, that we talked about Ezra. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, but as far as the timeline goes, from Ezra now to Nehemiah, it's been 13 years since he has been mentioned in the books. When we did speak of Ezra, we found out that Ezra was given a specific job when he went back. Yes, he was to rebuild the temple, but the king wanted him to, to, to spread the law of the land. That was his job. But we know it was much more than that. Because if we look back into chapter 7, verse 10, it's not up on the screen. But it says that his job was to teach the law of the Lord. Remember, we said that he was to study it and to practice it and to teach it. And of course, that was our challenge as well. And so the the king gave him freedom when he returned to do just that. And he took every opportunity that he could. So here at the reintroduction of this great leader, this great example, we see that he is doing exactly what he was called to do. Something that he would naturally do in verse 1. You can look at it. It says, all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which... The Lord had given to Israel. So Ezra was in his natural position. He was reading the law. He was teaching the law. But it wasn't because it was his job. Yes, that was part of it. But if you look in the verse, it says that he's doing it because he was asked to do it. Now, one commentator points this out. He says, it is remarkable that these people ask for instruction. Though they do not keep the law, they have a yearning after it. They are not content with their existing condition, but they desire better things. And they have an instinctive feeling that to hear God's word would help them. So despite, despite all of their flaws, these people want to hear the word of God. They feel a need for it. And Ezra says, you know what? I'm ready. I'm willing. And so in verse 3, you see they all get together. And it says, from early morning until midday, Ezra reads the word. Now, this meaning of uh, early light or the light uh, uh, literally means first light. So that means from the time the sun came up till about the noon hour, they were having some church. That's about six hours straight of Ezra reading the word and the people listening. Six hours. Hours. There would be an absolute revolt on our hands if Pastor Larry and myself decided to preach for six hours. I mean, I'm willing to do it. Would you split it with me? We could do it, right? I have a feeling that one by one, as you started to get hungry or doze off, you'd walk out. Six hours. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes I get to look at judgment when I approach that 40-minute uh, time frame. It's like... Okay, dude, you know, and the noon hour comes up, and it's like, oh, man, I get it. I sit there, too, and I get antsy. 
And, and I, I've been to churches before where the preacher preaches for an hour. Not the service is an hour, but the preacher preaches for an hour. And you're like, okay, here we go. We're just gonna, it's a marathon. We're just, just going to keep going. And so these people, they're sitting there and they're listening. And, but see, it's not about the preacher. It's about the Word, right? See, we can start dozing off pretty quickly. You know, we can think about lunch or dinner or what we have to do this, this week. And some of you, I'm not going to point any fingers, some of you actually do sleep. You catch up on sleep. I, I know who you are. I'm not going to point you out. I'm going to let you have that. But see, these people, they had nothing but the Word of God. It was Ezra, you know, a little podium, and nothing else, just the Word. I wonder if we stripped this place down. Okay, we had nothing up here, no keyboards, no monitors, no microphones, no singers, no drums, no lights. If we got rid of the fans, it's really hot in here, uh, we could get rid of the fans, right? We get rid of the projectors. And, and we had nothing but a teacher and the Word. I wonder, would it be enough? David Platt, in his book, Radical, I don't know if you've read it, but it's a great book. He talks about a, uh, a house church in Asia, a small country in Asia where it was illegal to be Christian, to, to even to meet as believers. These people, as they meet, just for meeting, they could lose their land, they could lose their jobs, they could lose their families, and in fact, they could even lose their lives for just meeting together. They met in a basement Nothing but a light hanging in the middle, pretty dimly lit room. They had asked David to come and to speak and to, and to bring a lesson. And so he prepares a lesson. A lesson has a start and it has an end. And it wasn't that long. And as the hours went by, they wanted to know more. It was just David and the Word. They wanted to know. So they said, will you come back tomorrow? He says, Sure. I can come back tomorrow. And all they had was a light hanging in the middle and the word. And it was enough. That's all they cared about. That's all that they wanted. Look, these Israelites, they didn't have much, right? I mean, technology, you know, I mean, they didn't really, really have a whole lot. They had Ezra, who was willing, and they had the very words of God. So they listened. And you would think after six hours, they would be losing people. People would be falling asleep. Somebody giving an elbow. You know, I mean, something would have been happening. But if you look at verse 3, it's very interesting. It says that they were attentive. That means that they were captivated by the words of God. They were captivated by the law. They were paying attention. It's almost as if you could picture them with their ear just kind of trying to listen a little bit closer. It was important to them. And it was the word, that's all they needed was the word of God. They recognized it and they were doing what they were felt were led to do. See, their reaction, as you look on in the chapter, says their reaction was reverence. They stood for the word of God. They were just doing what they thought they should. And now don't misunderstand that this, this here is a description of the thing that was happening right in that moment. It's not a prescription for things that we have to do. I've been to churches where you stand for the reading of God's word. I've been to churches where they sit. It's not about that. It was about their reaction. They felt the need. We're going to stand for this. And so they did. And then they continued to react as they fell to their knees. 
They had their face flat on the ground. And what did they do? They worshipped God. They were moved by the word of God. Here's what I feel like too, far too often. You and I, myself included, we fail to react to the word. Now, this is not sometimes we just fail to react to the word, but we refuse to be moved by the word. And we're going to see today, as the word is read and as you listen to it, there must be a reaction to it. In fact, there is a reaction to it. You could either hear the word and be like, okay, that's fine, and then totally ignore it. You could say, okay, that is a good word, and I, I, I probably should do something, but they're, 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 you know, you're not going to do it. Or you say, it's a good word, I'm going to respond to it, and I'm going to put it into practice. Either way, there's a response. And what the Israelites were doing is they were responding to the word of God. So Ezra keeps reading. And there were others there. There were other people that are mentioned in that chapter that were reading. And if you look at verse 8, it wasn't just the fact that they were reading. They wanted to make sure that people understood it. I mean, this really is a great moment here in this book. The reactions will continue. And will continue for some time now as we go through chapters 8 and we go through chapter 9. And what we see next is what happens or should happen as we look into the Word of God, as we read the Word of God, as we hear it taught, there's something that should happen, and that is reflection. See, the goodness of the Word, the perfection of the Word, the standard at God's Word causes reflection and self-evaluation of our life. I'm sure that's what was happening with the nation of Israel because it says in verses 9 through 10 that they were mourning and they were weeping at the reading of God's word, which is quite natural. But the time of year that it was for the nation of Israel was not natural. See, it was supposed to be a time of celebration. It was no time for weeping. It was a time to be thankful, to celebrate what God is doing. And that word celebrate there literally means to have a great rejoicing. See, what they were about to do is they were about to reinstitute a, 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 a feast, which is referred to as the Feast of Booths. Or the Feast of the Tabernacle. This was something that had not been occurring for some time. And they wanted to reinstitute it. And so there are seven feasts in the nation of Israel. And this is the last one. The Feast of Booths was a particularly unique celebration. As it was a celebration of how God provided for his people. With the exodus out of Egypt. And the survival throughout the desert. See the booths that he was mentioning are temporary structures. That were meant to bring about a remembrance of the temporary structures that their ancestors lived in as they came out of the desert. With the Feast of the Tabernacles, we come to the most celebrated. This is the most celebrated, the most joyous of the seven feasts. It's also referred to as the season of our joy. Emphasizing the rejoicing of God dwelling with his people and the provision of the harvest. So not only was this feast supposed to serve as a reminder of the deliverance and the provisions, but also the fact that they were led into the land that they were promised. So this was no time for mourning and weeping. It was a time of celebration and remembrance because the time of mourning, the time of confession that will come. So as chapter 8 closes, we see in verse 18, it closes as it began. Ezra is reading the word. He read from the book of the law of God daily. Daily he read. From, so what we're seeing is we're seeing that a consistent reading, a consistent hearing of the word of God leads to 
a reaction. It must lead to reaction. And so as we get into chapter 9, we are going to see that there was some time that had passed. From the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 9, there was some time. The, the, the beginning of, of chapter 8 was at the beginning of the month. Um, as we start into chapter 9, it was towards the end of the month. And so we're moving on from that festival of booze. The, 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 the time continued. And so they decided as a group, as a nation, they're going to get together once again. However, this time, it's going to be completely different. The first time it was for celebration and remembrance. Now, this was indeed the time for confession of sins. Because what does it say about the people? They were dressed in sackcloth and dirt. A much different feel than before, isn't it? This confession is going to lead to a prayer in chapter 9 that is considered one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the, all of the Bible outside of the book of Psalms. It's a very long prayer. We're not going to read it verse by verse. It is very long. It's very detailed. But it is an amazing prayer. What ends up happening is that the nation of Israel, their history is being recalled all throughout this great prayer. Their history, however, they find and they're reminded would be nothing if it were not for Almighty God. So look what they say in verse 6. They say, you alone, you alone are God. See, the nations around them, in a polytheistic world, they declared their monotheism as they worshipped the one, the one true God, and that was Yahweh. See, their history is nothing without God. And so they recognize Him. And then the history lesson commences, as verse 9 talks about their time in Egypt, what they went through, how God did amazing things for Him, rescued the nation of Israel out of slavery and captivity. As an entire nation, their history is captured in these very few pages. A lot of verses, but it doesn't take up a lot of room in the Bible. Their history is recalled one after another, the things that God does. It's very opening, eye-opening. Remember when I spoke of reflections? And how the scripture should cause a reflection? Well, we need to see our reflection too in the scriptures. What happens, however, when we look too closely at our reflection? Our physical reflection. What happens when you get up close to the mirror, and you get close, and you get close, and you get close, and you realize what? I've got a lot of flaws. Anyone ever done that before? Like from far away, you're like, okay, yeah, I can pull that off. I'm looking pretty good. Look at, oh, no, didn't see that bump, didn't see that crack, didn't see that pimple. Didn't, I mean, the wrinkles, you see it. A deep reflection, you can see it. It's kind of like what HDTV first came out. And you felt like you could see into the very soul of the news anchor, right? You could see all their pores and every bump, and you're like, all right, let's zoom out. I don't need to see all that. See, here's what was happening with this prayer. The nation of Israel was taking a zoom lens to its history. They were looking deeply at it, and what they found and what it showed was not proven. If you look through that prayer, you see words like arrogant and stubborn and disobedient all used to describe the nation. It says that they would not listen. It says that multiple times in the prayer. And it says that they did evil. It wasn't pretty. But what had they been doing recently? Consistently. They had been reading the word. And having the word read to them. And having it explained to them. Which is powerful. The word of God is powerful in 
our lives, right? When we read the Word of God, we are hit smack in the face with the holiness of God, aren't we? When we see how amazing He is, but when we see how amazing He is, we see how far fall we, sh- we fall short. We fall so short when it comes to the glory of God. So the power of the Word is, is amazing. We see that. Hebrews 4.12. What does it say? It says, For the Word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of man. The Word of God is powerful. It's a reflection that happens and we see who we truly are. See, the reading of the law, the very words of God, is causing a reflection in the people. And again, they're seeing that it's It's not good. But just as bad as it is to take a close-up look at the nation of Israel and even ourselves up close, it's that much better to take a close-up look at who God is. Throughout this prayer, we get an amazing picture of the grace and the mercy of God throughout this prayer. Countless times in this chapter, it talks about all the things that God did for them. It says that you gave, you divided, you made known, you provided, you didn't forsake us, you subdued our enemies, you heard our cries. At least 37 times in this chapter, it says that God did something for the nation of Israel. 37 times in 32 verses, it says what God did for them. He says, you have to, you got to think about the fact of where the people were. They would still be in captivity if it were without without God. If if, if they came up to the Red Sea without God, they would have been killed there. They would have starved in the wilderness. They would have been conquered by their enemies if it weren't for God. But God provided for them. He gave them all that they needed he didn't forsake him. And the history of this people is absolutely amazing. And the overwhelming sense of God's grace and mercy and love in this prayer is outstanding. I would challenge you in your daily readings, in your devotions, pull out this prayer. Read it verse by verse. It really is a great prayer. See all of these things that God did for him. How did they respond? All the goodness, all the great things that God was doing. How did they respond? They were stubborn. They were arrogant. They didn't listen. Look, our God is a God of grace and mercy and love. He's long-suffering, but He is no pushover. And so what does it say in verse 27? That He delivered them into the hands of their oppressors. He says, okay, I'm kind of done with you for the moment. I'm going to allow you to be taken into captivity or be to be oppressed. And then what happens when they get oppressed? They call out to God and say, God, we're, we're hurting again. We really need you. And what does it say that he does? He hears their cries. He delivers them. See, our God is a compassionate God. Four times in this prayer, it says that he shows them compassion, which is literally a maternal kind of love. That's what, that's what, he's, that's what he's showing them. But what do they go back to doing again? Evil. Go back on and on and on. See, the beauty of our God is displayed, but guess what is also on display? The ugliness of man is revealed. Time and time again, they recognize. But by the time they come back to the end of this thing, this this verse, this beautiful, beautiful prayer, verse 33, they recognize something very important. They said, however, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. They come to the end of this. They realize how bad they were, 
They realized how good God was. And even though he did some, allowed some terrible things in their lives, they recognized that he was just, which means that he was right, that he was correct. It says that he was faithful in all the way through. I don't know about you, but if I was feeling the oppression, I'd be crying too. I would. It would be a hard thing, right? If you, God was allowing all those things in our lives, but what we come to find out is God was just in all that we, all that He did. I mean, do we not serve an awesome God? Aren't you so thankful that we serve a God of mercy and love and compassion? But aren't you also thankful that we serve a just God? A God that shows justice where it's deserved. And a God that is consistent with it. It's a pretty amazing prayer. Verse 38, they're going to wrap it up. This is an interesting statement. It says, now, verse 38, now because of all of this. He's saying, because of, because of what happened, because of our history, because of how bad we were, and we understand we don't want to go back there anymore. It says, because of all of that, we are going to make an agreement in writing. See, this is a wrap-up statement of this entire prayer. They had celebrated what God had done for them, and they came to the point where they recognized they were wrong, and, and they were, were reliving and rehashing this history, sort of. But now they're at a point where they're going to commit and it's going to be in rut. They don't want to fall back into that rut anymore, even though they're going to. They don't want to go back into that. They want to make a commitment, and they're going to see it and put it in writing. Isn't that what we want? If someone's going to promise us something, we want to see it in writing. That's why we make up contracts. That's why we have like a tree's worth of paper every time we buy a car, we buy a house. I mean, it's, it's all there. It's all got to be there. They were ready. They were ready to make this commitment. They realized the faithfulness of God. And they realized their unfaithfulness. And so they said, we want to make sure this is not going to happen. See, what's important to realize is this. Confession is only a part of the equation here. See, confession is this. Confession is an admittance of guilt, but it's also an agreement with God. God says, you know what, this is wrong. And you go, yeah, you know what, I agree. I was wrong for doing this. But see, once you have agreed with God that what we are doing is wrong, we don't continue in it, right? No. Paul says in, in Romans 1, no, may it never be. See, confession leads to repentance. Jesus called for repentance from people when he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He even told his disciples in Mark 6, said, go out and I want you to preach. And what did they preach? They said, man needs to repent. That is, they need to change their ways. See, confession is an admittance of guilt, an agreement with God, but repentance speaks of life change. We're changing who we are. It literally is a change of mind. And this is what the people were doing. They recognized where they were. They were confessing their sins. They're ready to change. They're ready to change their actions. They understood how bad things had gotten, and they didn't want to return to that place. So the people of Israel, they're getting on the right track. They're reading God's word on a consistent basis. That word causes a reflection that leads to a confession. And that confession is now leading to repentance, which is a life change. And then as we get into chapter 10, what we see is this. We see a list of the people who are going to be signing this document on behalf of the nation. And the question is, well, what, what are they committing to? Like, what are the details? Very quickly and just briefly here, I'm going to share with you. There are a few details 
They said, first of all, we're going to separate from the people. See, when they were called and they were brought into the land, God said, I want you to defeat the land. I want you to clear them out. I don't want you intermarrying. They cleared out most of them. They kept some of them. They kept the ones that were helpful. And then they ended up intermarrying. And we know it got them into a lot of trouble. They're saying, okay, God, we're, we're, we're going to honor that. We are going to separate from the land. Then they said, uh, we're going to observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't being uh, observed appropriately. Okay, we're, we're, going to, we're going to do that. Then it says towards the end of chapter 10, it says, look, we're going to give sacrificially. Notice as you look at the, at the end of chapter 10, it says that they're giving their first of everything, their best of everything, not their leftovers. They weren't giving enough to God. But specifically, what can we take from that? Look at verse 29. They summarize it by saying this. We're making an oath to walk in God's law. They were saying, you know what, we're going to live to please you. Yeah, there's some details in there, but the gist of it, the overarching theme, what we want to do, what we want to make sure in our lives is that we're living to please you. See, if we look back at that prayer in chapter 9, we're not going to rehash it, but there's a few things that we need to look at. There's this, this history that they're going through. There's something that is painfully obvious that we need to look at. The, the, the words that we used, um, we didn't really uh, talk about too much. One of the first words that is used to refer to them, the nation of Israel, is that they were arrogant. They're just saying that word arrogant, right? It, it speaks of this pride. Uh, it, it speaks of an attitude that thinks more of yourself than he ought to. This same word in the Hebrew translated into English is also translated presumptuous. See, they had a pride in themselves. It was their uh, me first mentality. Not only were they arrogant, but they were stubborn. Which literally means, that word literally means they were, they were difficult. And, and if you're a parent, you know what stubborn means. You see it from your kids, Right? Now, there's some kids in here. Kids, sometimes see from parents, don't you? But we, we can just be stubborn people. We can literally dig our, our heels into the, the ground and say, no, I'm, I, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it. When we don't want to do something, we can be very, very stubborn. This was the nation of Israel. So not only were they arrogant, not only were they stubborn, they refused to listen. It didn't matter what was being said. It didn't matter that God said, this is going to happen if you do it. They, they refused to listen. And it wasn't that they had trouble understanding, it was they just didn't care to listen. They refused. They essentially said, no. So frustrating when you're talking to somebody and they're not listening. You can tell them until they're blue in the face, this is what you need to do. But sometimes they need to make the decision and they need to do it on their own. I know you've all been through that. But all, all three of these things, all three of these terms have one thing in common. And we see it as a common thread all throughout that prayer. And it's this. It's selfishness. The nation of Israel was acting on behalf of themselves, to please themselves. It was all selfishness. The nation of Israel was never in want. They had everything that they could possibly need. It wasn't enough. They complained. They were not content with what they had. They, 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 what they had before, and, and, and they were getting so much, so much more than they even deserved. See, God had given them kingdoms and allowed them to, to go their own way in certain things. But yet, what did they do? They followed the lust of their eyes. He said, "You can't have this," and of course, they want it. I mean, isn't that what happens when somebody says you can't have that? All of a sudden, you're like, "Okay, well, I want that." I mean, that's just that's what they were living. Everything they went through. And the entire reason they were in captivity in the very first place was because of their selfish 
desires. Mankind really is selfish, aren't we? I mean, we, things are never enough. We find something to complain about, right? I mean, if it's too cold, uh, we're like, man, it's freezing. I, I hope it's hot. Remind me when it's hot. I won't complain about the, the heat. And someone gets hot, you're like, oh, sweet mother, it's hot out here. Remind me when it gets cold. And when it gets cold, I'm not going to complain about the cold. And, and, and you, you go back and forth. We get too much rain, and we want the sun, and the sun comes out. You're like, ooh, that's hot. I mean, maybe you've looked at your bank account lately, and there's not enough zeros there. Or maybe there's too many. Right? I mean, we, the, we can just, it's never enough. And what is the root of all of it? Selfishness. We get so caught up in ourselves. In fact, selfishness is the engine that has driven mankind since the very beginning. I must have been a very selfish kid. I think all kids, real young kids are, right? And, and I must have said the phrase, I want a lot. I must have said, because there is a phrase that my dad used to say, still says today, uh, it's ingrained on my mind. I would say, I want, I want, I want, I want. My dad would say, man, it sounds like you need to get your water fixed. Some of us need our water fixed. Some of us have a water problem. I I think we all do to a certain extent. We fight a culture that is around us that says, look out for number one. We try to focus on what God wants for us and the desires of our lives with the culture around us. The nation of Israel was feeling that. They were at a point where they recognized they're not living like they should. They were holding on to more than they ought to. They realized that they were starting to take and look like the culture around them. They were disobeying God. They were not separating themselves. They realized the Sabbath was not being uh, uh, celebrated appropriately like it was in the Old Testament. They came to realize that following their selfish desires rather than God's desires was a big, big problem. That was the reflection that they saw when they looked into the Word of God. As we close this morning, I want to take you back to that dimly lit room in Asia. The people came back. They wanted to hear more of the Word of God. Consistently. Bring us more. Teach us more. And as... David Platt goes back in. He sees that they were about to pray. And as he walks in, he hears them talking about all the hardships that they went through. Even just to get there that day. About how their lives were in danger. And and how hard it was. And and they were just struggling. And then he says this. And I'm just going to read this. He says, as I looked around the room, I saw that everyone was in tears. The struggles expressed by these people, they were not isolated, they were all around the room. And they all looked at one another, and what did they say? They said, we need to pray. Immediately, he says, they went to their knees, and with their faces to the ground, they began to cry out to God. Their prayers were marked less by grandiose theological language, and more by heartfelt praise and pleading. Here's what they said, oh God, thank you for loving us. Oh God, we need you. Jesus, we give our lives to you and for you. Jesus, we trust in you. They audibly wept before God as one leader after another prayed. After about an hour, the room drew silent. They rose from the floor. Humbled by what I had just seen and been a part of, I saw puddles of tears in a circle around the room. I'm sure in those tears... 
the only reflection that could be seen was of unselfishness, of love and devotion to God. See, they had heard the word. They had consistently been in it. They had a reflection on it, and they were acting on it, and it was all about God and not them. And what they were resting on is this very same thing that we're going to find out that the Israelites rested on, the very same thing that you and I can rest on, and that is verse 33 of chapter 9. We already looked at it. It's important for us to look at it again. Remember, they said, you are just, but you are faithful. Our God is faithful. I don't know about you, but it doesn't get any more encouraging than that. To know that our God is faithful. Because guess what we will do? We will slip up. We will fall. We will mess up. We'll say we won't do it again. But deep down inside, we know that that's not true. But there is one that can be taken at His word. There is one that has given us His word. That is inspired and without error. That is profitable for all things. There is one that has lived this life. That defeated sin. Defeated death. There is one that says, I don't care how many times you've fallen. I will pick you up no matter what. There is one that says, fix your eyes on me. Fix your eyes on me. Don't worry about everything else. And that is God Almighty. He is faithful. See, that is the God of the Bible. That is the God that we get introduced to. When we open up the Word of God, we see God Almighty. That is the God we serve, and He truly is mighty. See, the people were recognizing this. They recognized it, so what did they do? They read His Word on a consistent basis. That reading of God's Word, it caused a reflection. They reflected on the fact that they were sinners, that they were unfaithful, but they rested in the fact that even though they were unfaithful, God was always faithful and merciful and loving and just, and He wanted them to change. See, they wanted to be better. They wanted to do better and to live in such a way that pleases God. And I will suggest to you that that is exactly what we need in our lives. We have a want problem. But we also have a need problem. And the only solution to that need is God and His Word. So I want to leave you just with this statement. It's up on the screen. This is just kind of a wrap-up because this is what you and I need. We need to be in God's Word on a consistent basis. It will cause reflection. That reflection will inevitably cause confession. Confession is useless until it leads to a life change. That change has got to be from living for self to living for God. Because He is faithful even though we fail. Time and time and time again. That's my prayer for you. And I know that we can do it. That's why we keep challenging you each and every week to be in God's Word. It is profitable. Will you pray with me? Our God, it is simply amazing to read your Word. It is it's just awe-inspiring to think of who you are. Think of how great you are. Lord, and it, it causes a reflection, Lord. We look in your word and we realize just how depraved we are. How far from, from glory that we are. Lord, you, you are you're God and we are not. Lord, help us to not ignore those feelings, those emotions that cause us to, to confess those things that we've done. That causes us to reflect, Lord. Help us to, to move from a point of, of uh, reflection to a point where we realize we need to do better. We need to be better. And it all begins with being faithful in your word. We are so thankful that we have your word. 
Lord, I pray for each one in this room that we will be committed to you, committed to the things that you want us to do for your glory, not for our pleasure. Lord, you are a God that knows all things. You are a God that is all-powerful, and it's you that we serve. Lord, help us to live for you first. That's the challenge. Lord, give us strength as we leave this place today. Give us the strength to carry on day to day, to live for you and in the power of your word. We thank you for all of this in your son's precious name. Amen. Let's stand.